After experiencing the transformative power of a regular meditation practice, it's natural to feel inspired to share this gift and guide others on their own journey of discovery through meditation. Join Buddhist teacher David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell, comedian and creator of the Netflix animated series The Midnight Gospel, for a free online event on Tuesday, May 7th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. They'll discuss the profound practices of mindfulness Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash beherenow for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell. Raghu is back. I am back, and I'm with today Charles Eisenstein. Charles, wake, welcome. Welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you for welcoming me. I'm happy to be talking to you. Now, for the, those of you uh, who don't know, you've written, Charles, quite an array of different books and different subjects. I mean, is the newest one, Climate, a new story? Yeah, that's the, that's the newest one. And then I go all the way to the other end, the yoga of eating. Well, yeah, actually, that was, that's very much tied in. I don't know what I'm thinking. It's, it's perfect. Yeah, that's, I mean, it was kind of my practice book, but um, it had some of the, uh, some of the ideas that I work with today were, were there in uh, terminal form. Yeah. Yeah. Are you most, I mean, I'm most familiar with your book, uh, Sacred Economics. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of in the middle of it all. And, and you know, and I do want to really get into it, uh, get into what that is and so on. Uh, but uh, this is my billionth question because I've been doing this for a while. But I always like to know what was the trigger that allowed you to know that you weren't necessarily your mind, your thoughts, your emotions, and there was something else out there or in here that um, made you at least have some faith. Uh, and I'm putting words, these are my words, this is what happened to me, that I could be happy. Faith that I could be happy. That Faith that I could be happy, that mm -hmm. I did not have to be stuck in believing my mind and stories and so on. Yeah. I, I can't say that I even to this day have that, have a full complement of that faith. Uh, it comes and really? goes. <laughs> well, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. Of course. It comes and goes. And, and I might have an intellectual belief that I'm more than this mind, body, ego, but when I look at my day-to-day -day choices, they don't always reflect that belief. So I have to conclude that my belief isn't what I'm telling myself it is, and that there are many di di divergent, uh, conflicting beliefs that are inside of me at the same time. So You're the only one who that happens to, I'm, I'm quite sure, though. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. All right, but just yeah, something. Sorry, go yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. 
So I, I couldn't name one experience that flipped the switch. Uh, it's more of more of an accumulation of of experiences that send the message that the uh, birth story that I grew up in the the birth my birth religion is wrong or maybe just very very limited. Yeah. Uh, what was in terms though of understanding interconnectedness and consciousness and. Uh, understanding by that i mean that door opened up the doors of perception as mm -hmm. as he called it uh were were psychedelics involved at all yeah that was definitely one of the um watershed events um a uh, very powerful psychedelic experience i had when i was 22 that uh yeah it it showed me that mind wasn't what I thought it was that, or, or maybe it, it showed me the unity of mind and world in some sense, or the intimate connection between mind and world, mind and universe. Um, and, you know, these experiences are very hard to put into words coming back to my customary reality it's 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 hard to say is it accurate to say that it showed me that all is mind or that everything has mind or that like all is consciousness or something like none of the words really do it justice and in fact the words tend to reduce the experience to a smaller version of themselves and in a way even neuter their transformative impact so I, yeah, I don't really try to say exactly what happened to me in, in those experiences, but I do know that coming out of them, reality seemed less real or the things I thought were real didn't seem quite so compelling anymore. Mm. Right. Mm -hmm. That's it right there. <laughs> That's uh, exactly what I was inquiring about. When, uh, when you say mind and world, though, and I, for me, mind is tough, consciousness and world, I'm not sure, but maybe you can elucidate a little bit more about that when, you know, you say you had some kind of experience of, of the interconnectedness of, of these two things, correct? Yeah. Um yeah, an experience that in which those were not separate, that that the boundaries of myself were not what they had been. Hmm. Um, yeah, I, I I don't really have too much interest in building a metaphysical um, a metaphysical apparatus out of those experiences. One of the things that I've I've come to believe is that the the attempt to um, imitate the axiomatic method and say, okay, here are the basic principles of reality, and we'll reason ourselves up from those to gain all knowledge. That whole approach to knowledge is itself very limiting. 
you know, let's start with the metaphysics. Let's start with the basic principles. Let's start, you know, and, and um, so I don't have a whole lot of interest in trying to create a um, solid, consistent, complete metaphysics, um, you know, and, and, and that kind of, yeah, that kind of philosophy isn't that interesting to me. I mean, I might play with it sometimes, but it's not really where the juice is. Mm. Well, the visceral experience of a psychedelic obviously goes way beyond any intellectualization of any sort. And, uh, and of course, you know, I, I and many of us from back then, that, you know, late 60s, early 70s, this is my growing up in 20s and going to India and all that, uh, and meeting Ramdas, that was, uh, I see it now as an absolute necessity to have any understanding of what I was to experience in India at all, mm-hmm. a- any visceral connection to it, because uh, it was just way beyond anything that I had ever, I could even have dreamt of, maybe read in a book or something, but it was mm-hmm. ju- just that. Um, so I want to read something, Charles, that, because, uh, and we started a little bit talking about our story and how did, how did we realize, wait a minute, there, there's another story could be written here. Uh, aside from the one we're we're living uh, blindly, uh, this I don't know where this is from, but I'll, it's just a, a paragraph. Why does the sun shine? That's uh, a random result of coalescing gases igniting nuclear fusion, or is it in order to give us give its light and warmth to life? Why does the rain fall? I mean, these are the great questions when you're a kid, right? You ask these things. Is it the senseless product of blind chemical processes of evaporation and condensation, or is it to water life? Why do you seek to pour forth, pour forth your song? Is it to show off your genetic fitness to attract a mate, or is it to contribute to a more beautiful world? We may fear those first answers, but it is the second that carries the ring of truth. Every culture as far as I know, has something that I call a story of the world. That story is a weave of myths, meanings, narratives, words, symbols, rituals, and agreements that together define the world, our world. That story tells us who we are, how to be a man or a woman, what is important and valuable, what is real, what is sacred, what is humanity's role and purpose on this earth. And, uh, so when I read that, all I could think was, okay, I completely get that, and it seems like we are, we have lost our way, because we don't the the myths that we've created in this society. It's why I just was talking to somebody not long ago about in my own teenage years just being completely so unhappy just feeling caught in all of the uh, societal uh, imprints and uh, the what was going on at school for me, what was going on in a familial sense, and, and so on and so forth. Uh, so, yeah, we are not growing up in a very healthy atmosphere. Yeah. Yeah, That so that quote was from, I think, from climate. My, oh, my oh really? Oh, yeah. Oh, let's um, talk about that. Yeah. And, but it's the underlying theme of most of my writing, the idea that our civilization is in a transition in, in its deep stories, its myths. 
its meanings, all those things that you listed there. Um, and that I guess, you know, this is this transition has been underway a long time. When you were young, um, even then, even and when you were young, this could be maybe considered the peak of that story. It's it's absolute zenith, where it looked like humanity was unstoppable, and we were gonna, you know, create the perfect society and space colonies and and conquer every natural limitation and onwards and upwards, and there was no there was no limit that human human ingenuity couldn't overcome. But even then, and so this is before the ecological crisis. This was before the um, the breakdown of our social systems. This was before, I mean, back then, you know, we thought, yeah, poverty is going to be gone soon. The war on poverty, that's going to have just as much success as the war on not Nazism, you know. But, but even then, as you're saying, like you felt an emptiness underneath it all. You felt um, that it was phony. I remember reading mm. some of the literature from that time, right? Uh, a Catcher in the Rye. Like even then, the uh, sensitive people could feel the phoniness of it all. And since then, the story has been, it's in tatters now. It's falling apart. Um, and yeah, so more and more people just can't play into the life that the story prescribes for them. And that is creating a, a crisis of consciousness, you could say, where people don't know how to identify themselves and locate themselves in the world. And that, that difficulty is um, also reflected in our systems that don't offer us a place or a solid identity or enough connections to feel whole. So we're looking at a moment of profound crisis across every dimension on every level from the global, political, economic down to the inward. It is pushing though, don't you feel in the next generation in ways, actually, as far as I'm concerned, quite similar to the 60s, early 70s, pushing them both inside and also uh, active social action. There's a combination, I mean, we're seeing this through the work that we're doing with Ramdas and others. Uh, yeah, there's an amazing way in which they are consciously working on uh, rebooting that story, shall we say, as w uh, but not just internally, but also active, wanting to do something to, to make a change. Whereas back then we were more just going inside. We found this thing, okay, we can get clear inside, so let's just do that. There was much less of a willingness for uh, doing social action. I, f I find that, that there's a big difference. Yeah. So, um, I mean, I'm a couple of decades younger than you, I think, but the way I see it from my perspective is that there was this radical movement in the 1960s, early 70s, that included both social political uh, action and also uh, an awakening of consciousness. And then the 
social political part um, met with disappointment, betrayal, uh, despair. Um, and so people turned inward. And so by the 80s and 90s, you are having, you know, like meditate and do inner work and do yoga because it'll make you more successful. Or if you do it, it'll make you more successful. So there was no questioning that success in your career was a good metric of your uh, of the validity of your spiritual practice. Um, and I think that you're right that that is really, really changing today that, I mean, I run across a lot, a lot of young people, uh, my own sons included, who just cannot be bribed into joining the program as y'all called it back in the sixties, um, joining the establishment. My uh, second son, he, um, he's, he, he's good at writing code. You know, he wrote this whole cryptocurrency thing, uh, cryptocurrency relay station, and then couldn't quite finish it because he was just, he just didn't believe in it. Hmm. And then I introduced him to a friend who offered him three separate internships in his company. You know, this, my friend owns like a big company and has a lot. And, and he didn't take any of those jobs either because he didn't really, it wasn't concrete enough. He couldn't really, he didn't have the conviction that this was going to make a positive impact on the world. Mm. This is what the world needed him to be doing. He could have constructed a story like, oh yeah, cryptocurrency, that's going to, you know, change the world because right. decentralization. Yeah. But he didn't really believe that. So, uh, that, um, uncorruptibility is perhaps a sign of the times. Whereas when I was coming of age in my early twenties, you know, graduating from college, you know, a lot of us got bribed, bribed by wall street, bribed by law school, bribed by the foreign service or whatever. I went to an elite college. Um, and privately people may have, you know, listened to the grateful dead smoked pot, um, and had this cynical reserve of, well, yeah, but of course we really don't believe in all this stuff, but nonetheless, they were still bribable. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And that's changed partly because the bribes are less attractive, I think, because, um, oh, I'm not sure if that's true. Well, at least the insincerity that is the absolute um, lies that so many people in power are living is driving this generation. It's, it's actually a very positive thing. They're driving them to become uh, a balanced, real human being that is going to stick to their guns about what they feel they should or shouldn't be doing in this world and making a contribution just that way. That's a contribution. Yeah. I think a lot of people in my generation, that would be generation X. uh, In a way we were, we were resistant as well. 
but the resistance was unconscious and took the form of self-sabotage, took the form of being a slacker. We were the generation that invented the slacker, you know, who just didn't try that hard. Now, why is that? Is that because we were so entitled and selfish and contemptible that we just didn't bother to try? Or was not trying very hard our passive revolt? I think that it was the last, I think yeah. that's what it was. It was, a, it was a passive revolt because we just weren't excited about what was on offer. It wasn't that we lack um, will or lack some uh, primal virtue. It's that there was less and less that was offered to us that was worthy of our excitement and worthy of our passion. So we made a virtue out of not caring, Yeah, right. which mm-hmm. is, you know, that is um, a pathology too, it's, it's, but it's a symptom of a social pathology that we as a society aren't offering young people vocations and lives that are worth being excited about. It's not that they don't exist, but they're on the fringes. They're on the margins. They don't necessarily meet with economic reward. Sometimes they do, but usually they don't. And and yeah, it's a big dilemma for young people, my sons included. And it's the biggest question I get in, in my work too. Like, How do I contribute? How do I give my gifts and make a living? Which is a statement of the dysfunction of our system because ideally if you're making a contribution and doing what the world needs the most, you should be supported. The tribe will support you if you are helping the tribe. That has been true for most of human history. But now the tribe will support you if you're doing things that are harming the tribe, yeah. the tribe of all life on earth. Yeah, just again, a very yeah. fucked up myth is that we're yeah. living right now. It's, uh, yeah. I mean, and just look, look how we treat teachers. There's, you know, different uh, things have been going on in that area. And, you know, and, and look who's running the education department. I mean, it's really not good. Not no. good, you know. So... I've been thinking a lot and talking to a lot of people, friends and teachers and just about, okay, we, we do have to create our, uh, we have to transcend this story, uh, our story, our individual story. Each of us has that that's who we believe who we are story. And, um, so I like to go, so I'd like to talk about, well, His Holiness says the most concise thing about this in terms of compassion. He said, it all falls onto the mother, your mother, and how she related with you when you were a baby. He said, I'm like I am because my mother was great. He didn't say it in so many, you know, a little bit more eloquently than that. Uh, so like to go back and just see how these habitual patterns are formed, the conditions are, are, are there to form an individual. And then I, I come upon a, uh, a, a little essay that you wrote that I really loved, man. It was really great. It's called A Little Heartbreak. Uh, do you remember? It's a story yeah, of yeah. going to the park. Can you just tell that story? And, and there's so many different things in the in this essay uh, to me that are so powerfully related to exactly 
the conditions and, and the patterns that are being formed uh, in this case through this uh, young boy, too. Yeah. Um, I believe that, that particular incident was when we were at a playground with my son. He was maybe four at the time or five. And, you know, it's not like it was when I was a kid and there were groups of kids outside running around, playing unsupervised, the older ones taking care of the younger ones. When I was five, I would be outside unsupervised by, by adults. Um, no, like, like it's, the parents are really busy. So the grandparents take the kids. So here are these two other kids in the playground who, and the, the grandmother's hovering over one and the grandfather's hovering over the other and, and telling them how to go up the slide and how to get on the swing. And, um, finally Carrie, our son, um, starts playing with the, with the boy who's older. The little girl is three, I think. And the boy is maybe five and they're running around and playing and the grandmother can't keep up with him. So he gets some actual free time, actual unsupervised creative play. And he's having a blast. And at one point, the two little boys are even holding hands. Carrie's taking him to some other part of the playground. And I think that that was disturbing to the grandparents. Um, so they're like, okay, it's time to go home. And even that, like that arbitrary cutoff of play, that is actually a, a miniature trauma it sets a tone for the relationship between child and adult. And, and we are always being jerked around according to a schedule, subjected to a schedule. And then ultimately we habituate to it and it becomes the tempo of modern life. Anyway, so the boy doesn't want to go home and, and he's, mischievous and so there's a gate to the playground and he somehow um shuts the gate and you know so he won't have to go he he locks the locks the grandma and himself into the playground and and the grandpa's getting really angry you know it's starting to escalate and mm. and um finally he they get the gate open and then he starts running around the parking lot and then falls flat on his face, like falls really hard. Mm. And the grandfather bellows at him, good, you know, <laughs> serves you right. And he just starts wailing and the little girls, like the three-year-old girl starts crying and they, they, they shuffle them into the car and they're screaming and yelling. And, and <laughs> it's just this really painful scene. Um, yeah, it, 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 those, and I see that all the time, that kind of thing. The, um, yeah, we've all seen that <laughs> too yeah. much. Yeah, uh, and, 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 and it's, it's, it's so normalized too. And that's maybe a slightly more exaggerated version of what's normal. Um, but the demotion of play to something that that can maybe fit in in spare moments of the day in the hallways between class you know in those little minutes before the bell after the bell rings or something like that 
um, the it's it's the the seizure of childhood to make it into a training time for a confined adulthood. They speak of the school to prison pipeline. That's just another distillation mm. of something mm. that goes way beyond the ghetto. You know. Yeah. So, so yeah, it's a conditioning. Anyway, so I, I, I could go into a whole thing about school. You, but, um, <laughs> I wish yeah. you would one day. We'll have to do it just a, a whole thing just about school because it was the defining horror experience for me and set up uh, so much in my life that um, was very interesting karma. Uh, just, to, uh, just to refresh, one of the other things is ongoing with how you told this story um, I mean, you you said uh, the instant this incident cast a shadow over my heart, and trifling though it is compared to the real horrors that are going on in the world, but um, instead you say I'm shown a little boy hurt and shamed by the people he is biologically inclined to trust the most, and when I read that trust, which is a, a I make a big deal out of trust. Because mm-hmm. so many, I mean, I, it wasn't until I met Ramdas where I trusted one human being. And that led me into a, you know, a, a life-changing event. Uh, but so through him, I can feel a world of hurt because all these phenomena are part of each other. Alienated, traumatized, damaged little boys grow up to be the kind of men who <laughs> launch drone campaigns in genocide a world where small children experience a violation of their sovereignty is inevitably a world where the rainforest, whales, soil, and water suffer a similar violation. So that that is like a natural jump to what what is real and what we see day to day, either through the news or around us. Mm-hmm. On and and of course that's on the most radical level, but on the most common level, the hurt and uh, and pain and suffering and what gets uh, created, so that when you become an adult, you now have this very difficult uh, story that you believe in and that you are, and you're reacting to everything based on 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 this story. And and mm-hmm. this this what you related that happened into the park, in the park. I mean, I, who hasn't seen that? And who has not seen way worse? Being over at friends' houses with parents and so on, and all of that kind of thing going on all the time, and you start to realize the how difficult it is for everybody to cut through that bullshit. I mean, it's you know, mm-hmm. and it lasts a lifetime. Yeah. Yeah, it, it is impossible to stop ecocide and war and exploitation, all of the global problems, if we have a population who grew up like that. We will never succeed in doing that. Never. The healing has to go to that level. And um, yeah, and, and even if your childhood was much better than that, like one of the deepest programs that's implanted into us through modern parenting is the shame program or the conditional self-respect, the conditional self-acceptance program, where 
we are trained to think of ourselves, am I good or am I bad? What do I have to do to be good? Yeah. That leads to the political polarization that we're seeing today, where people divide the world into the good people and the bad people, everybody thinking themselves to be among the good people. It's not like Trump supporters are cackling and rubbing their hands in malicious glee as they come up with diabolical plans to spread evil in the world, glorying in their, their, in their identity with evil. No, they think that they are the good guys and that the liberals are the incomprehensibly ignorant, stupid, messed up, like they, they think the same thing that the liberals think about themselves. Yeah. Everybody thinks that they're on the good side. And I think that, that that way of seeing the world originates in, well, partly in parenting practices, but those have a deeper root too. It's, so partly it's trauma that's passed down from generation to generation to generation, uh, acute trauma, but also this generalized uh, uh, pervasive trauma. And also it is the ideology of modernity, it's in religion, it's in science, um, it's in the whole idea of rising above nature, which is evil because it's wild and untrammeled and uncontrolled mm. to a civilized state where we control all that. We become less of nature, less animal, more refined, more spiritual. So this opposition, as long as this exists in our psyche, it's also gonna exist in our society and we will have endless war of various kinds, endless war. So, yeah, I mean, again, I'm, 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 I'm not saying, okay, forget about political concerns and just focus on the self, just focus on the, the, the consciousness. Uh, but I'm saying that all of these levels reflect each other. Yeah. Yeah. And they all need to be worked on, absolutely. Right. Um, but uh, and you say some good stuff here too around what we do. Are you talking about uh, polarization and uh, what we think about Trump supporters and what Trump supporters think about liberals and so on? We uh, humanizing the enemy. Uh, you know, the thought is that that truly does hamper the effort, the war effort, right? Right. But how do we even get anywhere near there? I mean, you know, it's uh, it's so easy to just stick with the uh, the immediate polarization and consideration of of them. It's a big them. And uh, yeah. So if your game plan for changing the world, for improving the world is to defeat the forces of evil, then humanizing the enemy that is not uh, aligned with the plan. That is is counterproductive. Even if it's true that the enemy is consists of basically good people who have been traumatized and have had experiences that lead them to become racists and bigots and misogynists, et cetera, et cetera. Even if that's true, you don't want to admit that because then we're not going to have as much righteous indignation to tear those fuckers down. Yeah. <laughs> so, so this is what I, what I, some people call the weaponization of narrative huh. where something besides the truth becomes most important. The truth leads one to compassion. 
because the truth, say, of those grandparents who were abusing that child, the truth is that they're doing their best. The truth is that horrible things have happened to them. The truth is that they're under terrible pressure. The truth is that they're probably on opioids or pain medication, um, and they're struggling hard to do their best. So truth leads to compassion. Truth leads to what is it like to be you? I want to know the truth. How is it actually for you? So truth must be sacrificed in order to weaponize a narrative. Therefore, compassion also must be sacrificed. Mm. Goes both ways. And again, we construct a story in which war is the only answer. Victory is the only goal. And, and, and of course, since we're the good guys, that's fine. Yeah, that's yeah. Oh God! Oh God! Yeah, but but once we identify that and see that happening, then we notice our own participation in it. When we notice our own participation in it, we become less enthusiastic participants because we see it. Oh, here I am making myself to be good, making myself to be right, making myself to be on the good team, is that true? What am I not seeing? Hmm. And just having that awareness erodes that, that self-righteous certainty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And we talk about this all the time and all the work that we do, the podcasts, the retreats, everything that we do around mindfulness is, that's our, you know, that is the beginning of a chance to transform. But I, I, I just did, this is my new uh, mantra uh, Charles, that's just uh, three lines from uh, Tolku Urgian Rinpoche. And I guess it's expressing, in, in, for me, it's subjectively expressing, oh my God, this is a fucking mountain to climb. Changing habits, he says, is like straightening out a tightly rolled scrap of paper. You unfold the paper and straighten it out. But if you let go of it even briefly... It rolls right back up by itself, Toku or Gid Rinpoche. I've been talking about lately and telling everybody, get, uh, his whole family is a, uh, uh, this is, I've done this last week with, I uh, forget who I was talking with, but this dynasty of a family, uh, Mingyur Rinpoche and Choki Nimya. I mean, it's just incredible who these beings are. But just taking that for what it is, we need, uh, as much as we're, we, we can have mindfulness, we need to have uh, a practice that allows us to, to get in the, a little bit of leverage on, on just what we're talking about, especially this polarization issue, because it is so easy, and it's most especially around environment, Right. That that's uh, probably, or at least it is for me, the most difficult because it's it's. I'm looking at grandchildren at this point and going, "Oi, what are we, you know? What are we talking about?" And um, yeah, yeah, I, I love that metaphor. That's very vivid. It? Yeah, paper rolling yeah. up, and I'm just playing with it in my mind and and adding another ingredient um, hmm. besides the uh, you mentioned the mindfulness and um, the, what was it? The 
practice. Yeah, practice of any sort yeah. to leverage. Yeah, a practice of some sort. Yeah, another ingredient is a readiness, hmm. a, re- a, a readiness for the habit to change or the habit being ready to change. And I've noticed the power of identifying a readiness, honestly, and even identifying when you're not ready. Sometimes that kind of self-acceptance, yeah, I'm just not ready to change my habit of judgment. Sorry, wish I were ready. I would approve of myself if I were ready, but I'm just not ready to let go of that grudge. I'm just not ready to stop gossiping. I'm just not ready to whatever habit you have. Often that actually creates a shift because the difficulty in change sometimes comes because a war against the self has been set up where you're pitting desire against willpower. And the way that we try to win a war against ourselves is through an inner campaign of coercion, um, leveraging self-approval. You know, if I change, I get to like myself. If I don't, what a shitty person I am. <laughs> Continue and, and, to be. <laughs> right. So that that's a war. And and the and it's a self-perpetuating cycle because the failure um to to win the war on desire intensifies the self-rejection, which is what generates a lot of the bad habits to begin with. So anyway, uh, that's a whole piece that I could elaborate on. But but what I would say, um, yeah, I'm thinking of that that curled up piece of paper, and imagine in the in the middle of that piece of paper, there's like a really smelly, rotten little piece of meat, or some like little piece of crap in there. You know, it's really rotten. So, you, so you curl up around that. Oh, you know, that's like your. But then it smells so bad that you want to unfurl again. And then, as soon as you stop paying attention, you're curled up again. But it's not like ah, oh, back home. This feels great. It's like, oh, yeah. this is not where I want to be either. So it's it's one of those things where where I think a lot of people experience this. You go, you snap back to a prior state of being but you don't feel at home there anymore. Maybe you left a corporate job and you're going through the, the initiation of unemployment and your savings are dwindling and you have to sell your house and your relationship ends because it was built around this secure job, et cetera, et cetera. And oh, okay, I'm just gonna get a job again. And you go back, you try to go back and it lasts like, Whereas the first stint in corporate America lasted 18 years, the second stint lasts like six weeks because it just does not feel at home anymore. So I, I, I think that there's a, we have an ally in a way that an ally to our aspiration to unfold the ally is the discomfort of remaining who we were. And that's what I'm referring to with as the readiness. Right. Right. Yeah. Suffering is uh, in it's really our, important. Yeah. In our really, tra- tradition, Neem Karoli Baba, our guru Ramdas guru, used to say, uh, I love suffering. It brings me closer to God. 
I mean, this is somebody who mm-hmm. was living in, in that undivided anyhow. And this is something Ramdas has picked up over the years. And his proof in the pudding, so to speak, uh, you know, getting a stroke and having his gift take his gift of the gab taken away, one of the great speakers of the last whatever, and being able to go internally and find the place that he was talking about more or less, uh, that is something that uh, the people who hear him say that can trust that in a big way because he's experientially actually that happened and he's Mm -hmm. done that and he's converted that but it's on a day-to-day basis most of us reject that absolutely reject it because it's uncomfortable uh oh how about this i just remembering this thing it was martin luther king day not too long ago dr king and i just happened to be i don't know look maybe it was social media of all people lebron james right the basketball player beyond basketball player, said, what I loved about Dr. King was his comfort with discomfort. I was like, I thought, that's that's fantastic. That's the one thing we all absolutely shy away from. And and that discomfort that you're talking about that eventually leads us to, you know, we might have been there for 18 years, the first go-around, the next one's only six weeks. That's a great example of that. Couldn't do it. And and I do agree with you. When that happens, then change can happen. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. For me, it's... it's it, um invites me into a more gentle way of seeing healing, spiritual healing, spiritual evolution, where it's not this heroic campaign to defeat the bad parts of yourself, but it's about recognizing the next stage of, of a process when it's ready to happen. Because if the spiritual so-called spiritual quest is motivated by the ego, which wants to uh, become something worthy of love, uh, become something, then you're going to railroad over the, the organic process. Like anything, you're going to say, well, I don't care if I'm ready or not to make this change because I'm just going to do it because I don't want to be somebody who's not ready to do that yet. I want to be somebody who's ready. I want to be one of the elite practitioners. I don't want to be somebody who's doing it slowly. And there's other people more advanced than me. You know, I want to take the fast road. I want to take the, the, the steep path and get there first, get there quick. Like that, if, if you have any of those motivations, those are coming from ego. So, but they are the American way. Yeah. And, but they're an obstacle, (laughs) you know, and, and they just do not begin to comprehend the subtlety of the process that we are involved in. Yeah. 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 And it goes also, it's back to what we started talking about, about us, the myths that we no longer have that are healthy. And it goes back to that, I think. And 
uh, the more and more people who can help redefine these myths or recreate. I think you even, there's something I read of yours, uh, finding the courage to step into a new story. I'm not sure if that was a blog you wrote or whatever, but that's, yeah. I think that that's extraordinarily important. Yeah. What, um, before we get to the end here, I absolutely. So the new book around uh, a new story around climate change. What uh, talk about that a little bit? I mean, that highly interests me. Uh, there is so much angst and depressiveness around where we are at. And so many people saying, "Geez, you don't even know where we're at." I mean, it is so on the edge of not being able to heal itself, the earth. So tell me a little bit mm -hmm. from your take. Yeah, it's hard to know where to begin with that. Uh, maybe I'll, I'll begin rooting it in this conversation. Yeah. Uh, speaking, I, I think I mentioned before that, or even in that essay, that the, a little heartbreak. Yeah that a world full of people who have had the kind of experiences that those children were having will never cohere enough to, uh, to, to coordinate our creativity and, and our collective will for the healing of the earth to make that big a change is not going to happen from a warring population from, from people who are, in the state of mind, having the kinds of politics, having the kinds of relationships that we're having right now, ecological healing cannot possibly happen. So an essential part of the healing has to be social healing and personal healing. The climate is a symptom of everything because everything is so interconnected that any harm anywhere could have global effects. The paradigm I work with in the book is called the living planet paradigm. And one of the conclusions is that even if we cut carbon emissions to zero, if we continue destroying the organs and tissues of a living being, the living being being earth, the organs and tissues being forests, wetlands, uh, rivers, soil, oceans, fish, whales, turtles, uh, every species, every ecosystem, humans too, is an organ of a living being. If we keep doing that, then the earth will still die of organ failure, even if we cut emissions to zero. It's not a machine where you tweak the air diesel mixture and you get an engine that runs perfectly well. It's not a machine where you could install carbon sucking machines and, and sequester the carbon out of the atmosphere and enable the strip mines and the waste dumps and the plastic and so forth to continue business as usual. It's not like that. So um, yeah, that's, that's, that's one aspect of the living planet view. Uh, and another another thing maybe I'll just mention here is that 
knowing Earth and all of its beings is alive, we have another reason to protect the environment besides the bad things that'll happen to us. I think that the dominant narrative is mostly about the bad things that'll happen to us if we don't change. The economic losses, the, the human losses, immigration is gonna increase, there'll be refugees, there'll be wars, wars over water, water uh, agricultural production will plummet, et cetera. Like those are all bad things that'll happen to us if we don't change. But what about the bad things that are happening to the whales? to the fish, to the forests? Like, what about them, to the planet? Is it, is it valid to care about that, even if bad things won't happen to us? I think that the transition that we are being invited into by the climate crisis is into caring about Earth and all of its systems and all of its beings, um, for their own inherent worth and merit, not just for their use to us. Because the mentality of earth is for us to use, that is deep, deep, deep at the root of the problem. So being a little smarter about how we deploy the natural resources for our benefit, that's not a deep enough revolution. Where we need to go is to love of the planet and all of its beings. And then we have an internal soul, heart level reason for caring for the forest, even if we don't know that the forest sequesters carbon or something like that. Because what if, what about, what about whales or what about fish or what about um, GMOs um, or mines? Like, you can't always measure the carbon uh, impact of, of many of our choices. So in fact, sometimes the most humanitarian kind thing to do might increase measurable carbon emissions, like housing the homeless. They're scavengers right now with a very low carbon footprint. Are you telling me that we should make them, you know, rehabilitate them and make them productive members of society, consuming things. Maybe, you know, and then you, you, I mean, in the more extreme cases, you say the best thing for the earth would be to cut the population in half. Yeah, that's, that's Ebenezer Scrooge talking there. So, so but, but I would say that a society that exploits and, and imprisons and, and, discards and casts off its most vulnerable members will necessarily be a society that does the same thing to the most vulnerable places on earth. It's all part of the same matrix. And that's why healing in one arena will bring healing to all, all arenas. Where do you start? Where do I start? No, you. Where do oh. we start? Where do we start when you... Well, casually mention some of these, you know, enormous yeah. issues. Well, yeah. So what that means, you know, even though maybe a climate activist will say, okay, put everything aside and work for a carbon tax right now. Otherwise, nothing else you do matters. That I believe is faulty logic. And where we start is wherever uh, 
wherever our hearts call us to act in service and in healing. Because here's another piece of it. Um, understanding as indigenous people have always understood that we're not alone here, that intelligence is not only in human beings, but it's in the world too. When we understand that, that there is a tremendous power and intelligence that wants healing, that naturally moves towards healing, and that will uh, assist us in that movement, then we're like, okay, how do we um, follow those instructions? How do we allow this intelligence to put us in just the right place, in just the right circumstance where our gift can, can be the most useful? How do we know? How do we know? Is it some big thing? Is it some little thing? Like Nelson Mandela's grandmother, you know, she, I mean, I'm just making this up, but she could have been working on some big social movement or something, but instead all she did is take care of some little boy. Gave him so much love. That was her calling. Who could have known the profound effect that had on South Africa? How do you know what you're supposed to do? Do you really know how this world works? Do you really understand causality in this universe? Do you have a plan, a master plan that has step A, B, C, D, and E all the way to a successful world revolution and you know exactly what to do? Do you understand this whole thing? No. And if you think that you do, I probably do not want to follow your plan. <laughs> so we don't know. So fortunately, there is um, an intelligence in the world that does know and that is willing to put us where we need to be. So we have to listen to its instructions. And the listening organ is the heart. That's how we know where we're supposed to be, to be and what we're meant to do at any moment. The mind may or may not understand why this is the most important thing to do right now, but you can feel it. So to, in answer to the question, what do we do? It's to listen to what makes you care. Yeah. It sounds also, I mean, as you were speaking, education has to be a big part of this. How, uh, and then we wind back all the way to Nelson Mandela's grandmother, His Holiness the Dalai Lama's mother. We wind back into me. That's the most absolute necessary. Actually, His Holiness said... Uh, he said something like, Western mothers, Western civilization mothers are going to save the world. I think he said something like that. Maybe yeah, I've heard something like that. Something yeah. like that, right? And, you know, you just, this little thing from about Nelson Mandela, I mean, that, that to me is a huge thing. A huge thing. Right. The transference of love and compassion at the earliest stages of a human's incarnation, that is probably the most important thing that can happen to, to, to save this, basically to save this. Yeah. And at the same time, you know, I love what you said, Charles, you know, just the heart is the medium, 
by which we can hear what it is that we need to do in any given moment to contribute. Looking at the world situation, um, it, it is much worse than almost anybody understands from a certain perspective. And it, I believe it will take hundreds of years, maybe thousands of years for it to really be healed. So some things need to be done now that won't have an effect, a visible effect for 500 years. Some things need to be done that we have no idea how they're ever going to have an effect. Like what if your heart calls you to work in hospice with dying people? How is that going to have an effect? What if your heart calls you to, to do ceremony or to uh, revive dying languages? Um, it's hard to say. I mean, you can't put a carbon metric on those things. Yeah. But for me, it's been really liberating to, even though like the kind of work I do, you know, someone could say, well, you're having a big impact and a lot of leverage because, you know, thousands of people are reading your work or hopefully more than thousands, but whatever, like lots of people are reading your book, you know, and, and so you're having, you're doing something. Um, but if you're just being like, say a single mom, then sorry, you're not as important as Charles Eisenstein. <laughs> and that's just, um, it, that, that logic only makes sense if you're on say a 10 year time scale. But I'm on a 500-year time scale. And it may be that my friend who's been a single mom and struggled so hard to not make the kind of mistakes that I was that that we were talking about in that essay. And her sons grow up just a little bit more confident and a little bit more uh, at ease with themselves and pass on, they stop passing on the abuse yeah. that had been in the family. And their sons and their sons, and maybe in 250 years, one of them will do something world-changing. And so I truly do not know, and in a way, do not care um, if I can, if my work is more important or less important than the trash collector's work or the single mom's work. Like we cannot know that. And yeah. So what else do we have to guide us? Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Well, this has been so fantastic meeting you and chatting like this. Certainly. Uh, I think there's some, uh, uh, we try, we do strive for just whatever it is that we can offer that helps. I call it life and just get a little bit more balance in our lives so that we're able to get some spaciousness and and i think uh, we've we you have made we have made a contribution here in, in a very great way charles so th- i really thank you for being here well yeah thanks for having me um yeah i hope it was helpful yeah and to somebody oh absolutely uh and uh, everybody uh, we shall have as we always do we will go to uh, be here now network slash mind rolling and on the uh, page where the podcast will lie, aside from where it lies in iTunes, Amazon, all that stuff, will be links to Charles' books, latest book, and also website. You are so prolific, Charles. I cannot believe it, by the way. I mean, amazing. Mm-hmm. All the different subjects that you talk about and the work that you put out, really kudos to you. 
it's really quite fantastic. And I, I'm sorry I waited this long. Uh, you were in Asheville, which is where I am, and now you're not. And uh, so if you'll um, uh, bear with me, I, I want to continue because there's a, a number of other things I'd love to have uh, a discussion with you about. Yeah. Well, thank you, Regu. It was uh, enjoyable for me as well. Okay, great. So everybody, we'll see you next week on Mind Rolling on the Be Here Now Network.